You stabbed me a thousand times and then acted as if you were the one that was bleeding. My name is Andrea and this is Adult Child. Welcome back to Adult Child, where we take a deep dive into the impact of growing up in a dysfunctional family. Shit shows what is going on. Uh, if you're a new listener, please note that being called a shit show is the the highest compliment that one could receive. So embrace it. Today, we are diving deep with Dr. Gregory Kushnick. I heard him on the Mental Illness Happy Hour podcast with Paul Gilmartin. And we are diving deep into all things narcissism. So what is it? What causes it? Is it nature versus nurture? How is it different from borderline? If it's possible for a narcissist to change its stripes? And what to do if you realize that you are in a relationship with a narcissist? People love talking about this shit. People are fascinated by by narcissists and narcissism. So I, in the Patreon, sometimes before I have my interviews, I will ask everyone if they have any questions specific to the guest or on the topic. And, you know, usually I'll get, I don't know, a handful of questions. But when I when I posted in there, does anyone have any narcissism related questions? Like, I kid you not, there was like, there was like 10 responses within five minutes. But first, uh, I want to thank my newest Patreon member. So Patreon is where I host three weekly Zoom support groups. And truly, if, if you are not a part of this, you're really missing out. You deserve to heal and grow. And I'm telling you, you're not going to be able to do this on your own. And this is not me being self-serving. I mean, clearly, a girl's got to eat. A girl's got to feed her cat, but this is a group of people who get you. I mean, do you feel like no one understands you, that you're the only one? I mean, I felt like that for years. And this is a group full of people who 100% understand you, who have thought, felt, did, and said all the shit that you cringe over or that you think you're the only one doing. You know, these people have thought, said, did, felt, thought, (laughs) <laughs> all all the same things as you. This is a safe place for you to get raw and vulnerable with no judgment and with a really cool group of people. I mean, clearly, if you are a fan of this podcast, you have to be somewhat cool, right? I mean, you clearly don't have a stick up your ass. Uh, you clearly have a sense of humor. And I promise that we're not scary. We definitely are weird. <laughs> We recently started a a WhatsApp chat group, and we have people chatting all day. If you are struggling, if you're having a hard day, if you get triggered, this is a support system that is available to you at your fingertips. So thank you, thank you, thank you to Tori, Anna, Lori, Desiree, JWM Photo, I'm not quite sure what your name is, (laughs) Monica, Beth, uh, Amy, Kelly, Layla, Catherine, Alex, another Alex, Kelly, Kindle, Val, Marty, Ivy, Barbara, Jeanette, and Crystal. Thank you all. Go be a part of this cool kids club with these fine folks. Um, and you can also follow me on Instagram and TikTok at Adult Child Pod and whatever you do. Please give me a damn five-star rating on Apple and Spotify. Thank you. Welcome, Dr. Greg Kushnick. He is a psychologist in private practice in Manhattan. And I, I heard him on the, the Mental Illness Happy Hour podcast. So not quite sure where we're going to go, but we're going to see. So buckle up. Are you ready for this? I, I'm ready. <laughs> so you, when we were kind of scheduling this, you know, you made the comment about how everyone uh, needs therapy right now. It seems like it's impossible to find a therapist right now. And it seems like it's even more impossible 
to find one that's any good. Yeah, it's a real crisis right now, the, the way this is all designed and, uh, you know, where insurance companies are really uh, are limit you in terms of who you can see. And, you know, most people don't have very good out-of-network benefits. And you, you, if you go on your insurance website, you get a list of 100 therapists and maybe two are accepting new patients. And you even have therapists listed on there who aren't even in network. Mm-hmm. So you're really like, that's where you start out. It's going to take a while even just to get yeah. through that list. And it's very frustrating. And the two that are like uh, uh, accepting new patients are like a little suspect. You're like, why are, why? <laughs> why are they accepting new patients? Exactly. exactly. <laughs> so for you, what seems to be, what are kind of the hotbed issues right now? What are people coming in and, and wanting help with? Um, I would say more recently, it is about uh, there's two general categories. One would be a lot of uh, people with very high level, busy jobs, you know, people who are in leadership position, working however many hours, hours yeah. through the weekends, you know, kind of neglecting their their health and their families and realizing that they are causing destruction, you know, to themselves and other people and finally wake up and decide, or maybe their partner tells them like, Hey, listen, you are a mess, you know, go directly to therapy. Do not pass go, you know, just, um, this is very common in Manhattan, you know, where people suddenly realize that, you know, making a lot of money and having a lot of power, um, it comes at a heavy price if you don't find some semblance of balance. So I, I have um, a lot of that lately. And the other one, the other kind of category would be people who are having a very, very high anxiety and uh, panic attacks. Uh, I find that, uh, yeah, lately, I'd say in the past two months, um, I don't know if I don't know if that is also just a function of how I market or, or otherwise, but it seems like in terms of the patients who are, who are coming to my practice, a lot of people um, in the transition to uh, like in, in inside the office, you know, where they're doing some, maybe some hybrid version of working. I think as people re-engage the world on a more meaningful level, now that we're less concerned about COVID moment to moment, um, People are really uh, struggling, mm-hmm. really struggling with uh, kind of figuring out what they want. You know, people wanted to change jobs, figuring out what's important to them. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I would say that's the main categories. Um, so before we started recording, mm-hmm. I asked him if he was familiar with the term adult child. So I can just tell you a little bit of background. So the term adult child was originally developed to describe adult children of alcoholic. It's now been expanded to include other types of dysfunctional families. So there's tons of dysfunctional family systems that can produce an adult child. And essentially what it is, is, you know, the, the faulty programming that is ingrained in us as a kid, that essentially it's, you know, the, our unresolved childhood pain emerges Mm -hmm. and causes us to respond to life, you know, with self-doubt, you know, insecurity, all those things, all as a result of our childhood experiences, but we don't have a fucking clue that that's what's going on. And the experience that so many of us have had is that we sat in therapy for years and our therapists were never able to put a finger on the fact that the recurring issues that we have in life is actually a result of our childhood. And so it's like such a, I'm sure you're familiar with complex PTSD. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I'd be curious your opinion on this, but I mean, I think the vast majority of mental illness is probably rooted in childhood experiences as well as biology. But I mean, I think that that's at play a lot more probably than I think we're talking about it more now. Um, but I'm curious what you're seeing in your practice. Oh, I, I think uh, that's, that's right on that. It's relating to childhood trauma, childhood experiences. It, it, I feel like there's a push from my patients or from yeah, for my patients to uh, focus more on the here and now, you know, from the CBT model of let's deal with what's going on in the present moment. 
and uh, like a resistance to looking back into the past and, uh, you know, identifying some of these early childhood patterns or, or, or even calling things trauma, you know, some people, Mm -hmm. they definitely push back against that. A lot of people are saying like, I know how this all happened. Let's just focus on what's going on right now. You know, let's, let's take a rational approach so that I have tools to deal with in the moment, which is great in therapy. But it's like putting a bandaid on. Yeah, that's right. That's right. But absolutely it's rooted in, in, in childhood trauma and, and as we kind of move away from a more psychodynamic Freudian approach toward a more Thematic. here and now uh, yeah, cognitive yeah. behavioral approach, I, I think uh-huh. that that there is this pressure to stay in the present and talk about what you're dealing with right in this moment. And people almost get get resistant or bored with this notion of, you know, looking at how childhood patterns, you know, create uh, adult problems. Um, but absolutely, uh, I think, uh, uh, but, you know, trauma and uh, complex trauma, these are, these are topics that are, are absolutely getting more attention nowadays. And, and another way to look at it is, uh, I mean, I think the next frontier would be as for example with narcissism how we focus so much on the narcissist everybody our culture is obsessed with narcissists you know so many of our shows on on tv are all about you know the the damage caused by narcissists and the eventual indictment and punishment that comes from narcissistic abuse and uh, the next step is to talk about the people who are being abused and what that is Absolutely. There's too much focus on narcissism and almost no focus on what that abuse really is and what it does and making distinctions between types of abuse. Um, I feel like they are still kind of left out. So why are people so obsessed with narcissists? Um, that's a good question. I, I think um, it has to do with uh the maybe the influence of 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 social media and of yeah. where we're at in our culture where uh we've celebrated bad behavior so much yeah. uh with reality tv mm-hmm. and um other forms of media that that gave these um self-involved people the platform to kind of rage and we let them do that. Mm-hmm. And um, I think, like I was saying, that the focus more on the, the perpetrators and not the victims, almost like our society was not ready to really face the damage done. And we kind of let them run around. And then eventually, um, we kind of came to this moment um, where people started feeling like, you know, they were going to kind of sacrifice themselves for the common good to show the damage that narcissists do. So it was kind of this Mm -hmm. sacrificial element where people decided to step up. But I really think, you know, the the media created this social media Mm -hmm. um, really gave them this platform to, to uh, kind of wreak havoc on, on our culture. Um, I'm not sure if that answers your question. Exactly. Well, no, it does. Absolutely. Yeah. There's a, uh-huh. a couple of things that are coming up yeah. for me, but so, so one of, and I'm wondering if this, if you think that this is at play at all too. So one of the adult child um, characteristics is mm-hmm. we have an overdeveloped sense of responsibility and it is easier for us to be concerned with others rather than ourselves. This right. enables us not to look too closely at our own faults. And I'm wondering how much of that is in play too. Like, I think that that a lot of what's going on in, in social media and just the, you know, the demonizing, the name calling, the finger pointing. Mm-hmm. I was actually talking to Dr. Drew about this too. But like, yeah, mm-hmm. I feel like there's a lot of that too, right? Like, I just feel like there's a lot of name calling and judgment and all that stuff. And like, how much of that is really rooted in people not wanting to have to take a look at their own shit? Um, yeah, I, I think that 
that that is at play. I mean, it also has to do with that we the fact that we all have a platform for doing this now. So it's become even easier to call people out, you know, where we all want to be heard. And now we have all these ways of doing that that weren't there, you know, a decade ago, two decades ago. Um, but it has to do with right the availability of these platforms and also the fact that we're bombarded with other people doing it. You know, it's it's what we see all day long. So we we feel like we have the right to do that as well because it's what we know and see every time we, you know, scroll through our social media platforms. Yeah. And like the deep desire, like for attention, like you see it like on TikTok and stuff like that, like people trying to say that they have multiple personality disorder, or, you know, mm-hmm. it's, it's, it's like become like trendy to yeah. like be fucked up. <laughs> right. Yeah. I, I think, uh, yeah, there are, Definitely people who are trying on new identities and whether it's true or not, mm-hmm. um, it, this, because it's, we're constantly bombarded with it, it becomes an option, you know, it becomes something we can, we can consider. Um, and yes, it, it's like an, an infectious need that our culture has to, to gain attention and admiration. And it is, uh, you know, creating uh, new generations of, of narcissists. It's, it's something that we can't even appreciate it uh, at this point, what, what it's going to look like, you know, in the not so distant future, the fact that everyone is just obsessed with being liked and being seen and heard, you know, and, and my daughter, you know, talks about her one friend in third grade who had a TikTok account. And I'm just like, Mm. feel pain every time I hear that, you know, it's, what are we headed toward? It's, it's very, very scary. So yeah, we are becoming a, you know, a culture of narcissists. And um, I, I hope there's a shift. I don't know what's going to necessarily change that. Um, it's, it's very, very tricky. I think maybe when we eventually burn out of social media, maybe there'll be some point in the not so distant future when it won't be so trendy to be on there trying to get likes from people no because we'll just all be living in the metaverse right so it's not it'll just be all in the same yeah (laughs) no i think it has to shift at some point it can't just go like this there'll be something that changes it but it's absolutely true that uh, people are just more hungry than ever for this platform and this attention and um you know it's it's very sad and very difficult um and it's just having a terrible effect on people where in their free time, they're bombarding themselves with images of, of perfection. And then yeah. we're all kind of judging ourselves based on what we see. Mm-hmm. And it's very, very unhealthy. Like with Instagram, you know, the net of I'm, this is preaching to the choir, I'm sure, but the net effect of, you know, going on Instagram, scrolling through for most people, you feel like crap after you may not even realize that you feel like crap Mm -hmm. but after you just looked at you know the images of beauty or perfection or success or you know some kind of tropical island picture you know you're left kind of hating yourself or your life it's it's not that pleasant but we do it repeatedly you know we repeat that behavior everywhere yeah i know that's where i like luckily for me i'm like more addicted to candy crush than i am instagram (laughs) Like, it's very weird. Like, I don't doom scroll. I just, like, fucking yeah. play Candy Crush, like, yeah. all day long. So I don't know what that says about me, but whatever. I think coupled with the de- the deep desire for the need of attention, right. what also has come with that mm-hmm. is, like, a lack of empathy and compassion. I feel like people are so quick now to just demonize someone and the, the, the thought that we are all just a product of our own experiences, right? We're all just a product of our own childhoods, our own life experiences. And what we fail to realize is like, if we had the same life experience as somebody else, we would probably think and feel the exact same way that they do. That's what really I find to be most disheartening, right? It's just this, this lack of, 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 of compassion and empathy for others. And just like demonizing people as shitty, horrible people, as opposed to just somebody who thinks a little bit differently than you do. 
yeah, it's, it's, uh, we see that people are just losing that empathy muscle in, in so many ways. It's, it, it takes, uh, takes a lot to be able to learn how to, you know, be more empathic. Um, it's very hard. I do that work sometimes. Um, you know, when, when a, a wife contacts me and says, my husband's the raging narcissist, you know, please help, you know, help me or help him or help somebody, you know, we need help. And then I'm there sitting across from someone who's been labeled as narcissistic and, you know, it becomes a matter of how motivated they are to change and whether they have the self-reflective function to understand how their actions impact people. And then maybe we start to go into, um, I mean, eventually getting to some cut off with how their actions impact others and empathy for other people and putting themselves in other people's minds and seeing the world through, through um, their perspective. It's very, very challenging to do that work. And uh, like someone said to me, are there, are, are there former narcissists? You know, does that exist? Uh, you know, hi, I'm a former narcissist. Recovering I, I think narcissist. It, yeah, I think it does. I think it does exist. Really? It, it takes, it takes a, a lot of motivation to get there. And it probably takes a few years of dedicated therapy with someone who's skilled to be able to um, keep that person in therapy, because usually they, if you don't mm -hmm. see that you have the problem, how long are you going to stay in therapy for? You know, So it's, um, it's challenging work. The truth of the matter, my dear shit shows is that there is a huge overlap in those of us who grew up in a dysfunctional family and those of us who are suffering from ADHD. I myself got diagnosed with ADHD about a year ago and getting this diagnosis and treating this diagnosis has made such a difference in my productivity and getting shit done. Now, let me tell you about Done. Done is an online ADHD care platform where you can get all the resources you need to help manage your ADHD. Take a free one-minute assessment and book an appointment with a licensed ADHD clinician as soon as the next day. Get continuous care, one-click refills, insurance coverage, and 24-7 care team support with Done for just $79 a month and pharmacy copays as low as $0. Visit get.donefirst.com slash podcast to learn more. Again, that is get.donefirst.com slash podcast. Done, turn ADHD into your strength. Were somebody with true narcissism, mm -hmm. how would you compare, what would you say the similarities and differences are between somebody with true narcissism and somebody with addiction? True narcissism and somebody with addiction. Because, um, you know, you're talking about the, you know, it's like the, the denial factor, right? Right. Like the ability to see what's actually going on. So I'm just curious if you see similarities between the two disorders. Well, I mean, there's something about addiction that has a narcissistic quality, mm -hmm. right? It's when you're using, you are cut off from somewhat cut off from how your behavior is impacting other people. Right. I think that's. Yeah. You're not in the driver's seat, really. Yeah. Yeah. So in order to, I think part of the using experience is that you are literally in denial of how your actions are impacting others. So I mean, we can call that narcissism. Um, but I think, uh, you know, that would be, that would be where they, where they overlap is that mm -hmm. what you're doing, you're not exactly drinking heavily and sitting there thinking about how yeah. <laughs> hurt your wife is going to be that, you know, you're going to come home and, and wet the bed again and whatever it is. Um, that's not a good description, but I the point know. is um, there is a cutoff there of empathy and um, also a fragility, right? That you also go through periods where you're intensely self-conscious and hurting and feeling low and, you know, with low self-worth that goes with, the in between when you're mm -hmm. when you're recovering after uh, doing damage, that experience is probably very similar to what it's like to 
you know, be in a, in a bout of um, kind of like narcissistic recovery where you're feeling uh, less than and feeling in need of validation and feeling like uh, you're not important or you're, you have no worth. I, I think there's some overlap there, but I don't think I'm making such a clear distinction here. I think uh, you are. No, I totally get you. What would you say is the the um the underlying driving factor when it comes to to true narcissism the underlying driving factor mm-hmm. i think it's a i think it's a learned experience where there is a a void that has to be filled and um a desperate attempt to try to fill that void so that a person can feel uh, whole or worthy. Um, but it comes from childhood. It comes from, you know, people have to be bred this way. They're raised this way. It's not, okay, that was one of the questions I got was like, is a narcissist. It's so funny, right? Because I, I asked the question of like, why are people so obsessed with this? So mm-hmm. last night in my, in my community, I posted a question, like who has any questions about mm-hmm. narcissism? And it was like, literally within five minutes, I had like five more, five times more questions than I've ever had. Like, you know, Mm -hmm. for days I'll have things up, a ton of questions about this. So yeah. So that was one of the questions was like, is it, is it born or bred? Oh, it's bred. Yeah, it is. It is completely bred. It requires a certain set of experiences in childhood. Um, You, this, the seeds are planted usually early. Yeah, I was going to say that. Is it like, you know, something similar where like, would 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 true narcissism, uh, in order for that to to really be bred, would that require, you know, have starting to have those experiences, you know, age three and younger? You uh, three and younger, there, there are components of that. Yeah. Um, it, it can start, I mean, it starts in, in utero, it can start yeah. where yeah. You know, the parent starts to form, let's say, an expecting... Um, a pregnant woman starts to form an idea about what her child should be, even even based on a name, um, projecting into that unknown little creature, you know, who they're going to be or what they're going to do or how they're going to serve their needs. Um, or what about uh, how the father treats the mother while she's pregnant? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Lowering her self-worth, making her feel... Um, um, like she's going to pay a price for having a child, um, questioning herself. And then there's always the postpartum depression that goes with this kind of situation where you have an abusive partner. It's terrible. So yeah, you're, you're planting the seeds for this very, very young. Um, and then when the baby comes out, there are things that happen that I, I believe uh, start to pave the path even, even in the first year of life for some people. Mm. Mm-hmm. Like parents who um, are desperate for approval or for love, and um, I actually know one of the patterns because I, I studied it in my research uh, for yeah, my dissertation, share. you know, twenty years ago. Um, there was this pattern that was uh, pointed out by uh, Beatrice Beebe is, is is one of the first to talk about this, but it's it's a pattern where um, so the mother and the baby are facing each other and naturally babies turn away to lower their arousal to calm down and some people feel rejected when uh their their child turns away you know you're trying to engage your your baby Uh and the baby turns away for a moment maybe they're overstimulated or they need a break and parents with uh some pathology or who have this real need for validation what's i've seen on videotape uh is that the parents will enter the baby's space. Like if I turn to the side and on the baby, the parent will come here and chase me when I'm dodging. And then I go like this and the parent, it's like a desperate need for for connection and approval and validation. So it leads to an overstimulated baby. I wouldn't necessarily say that this leads to narcissism, but it's an example of how some of these things can form, you know, right from the beginning where a parent is, not recognizing that you're supposed to sit back a little bit and let your baby kind of return to, you know, when they're comfortable, not when you're comfortable. Mm -hmm. So it's just, you know, this is where the parents sort of very early on 
are trying to serve their own needs as opposed to understanding that, hey, your baby, you know, needs something that is more important than your getting validation that you're loved by this child. Can you talk about some other kind of childhood experiences or dynamics that would result in that child becoming a narcissist? Um, so another one would be uh, a parent who um, doesn't uh, give any credence to the child expressing um, their emotions and talking about their hurt, where they just want the child to be, let's say, a a father just wants his son to kind of suck it up and be tough and doesn't isn't really comfortable with a child who's expressing pain or anxiety and is very dismissive of of actual emotional needs as they're happening and in that discomfort they punish the child for just wanting to share and um i mean that also happens very early on yeah um, very, very early. But in general, you know, a lot of people just aren't comfortable with the, uh, the language of emotion. And uh, let's say a father just wants his son to be strong and uh, be a man. And the kid kind of misses out on, um, you know, the ability to, to share and feel heard to feel felt mm-hmm. by the parent. Um, I mean, there have to be other components to really, mm-hmm, I think, turn mm-hmm. someone into a narcissist, mm-hmm. but um, it's it's often modeled for a child, right? Like a narcissistic parent showing these kind of, you know, self-involved behaviors, grandiose behaviors where the child is there to serve the parent's needs. Um, and this is, this is modeled um, and, and many children grow up to replicate what they've seen. So this becomes um, their own reality. Another example would be a parent who only focuses on one aspect of a child, mm-hmm, like mm-hmm. A, a lot of common Their one is where intelligence or beauty, yeah. like, yeah. Oh, she's my, you know, she's the gorgeous child. Yeah. And you know, you only celebrate her for her, for the outside and ignore the inside. And um, mm-hmm. you know, then the child is, feeling terrible about herself and obsessed with beauty and outward appearance. And um, that carries into adulthood. And unfortunately, the world doesn't work like that, right? Yeah. You know, you can't get through life just focusing on your beauty and how people admire your looks. I mean, you could do it on, on TikTok, but it's just not how the world works. So parents who tend to not see a child as the full person, but rather just constantly over years emphasize one quality at the expense of acknowledging the actual you know emotional life of the child and making the child feel like life is about more than your outward appearance or your intelligence Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. so i know one common experience is with a narcissistic parent is that Mm -hmm. like they'll pick one child that's like the golden child Mm -hmm. and then they'll have one that they treat like shit how does that, what is the difference in that? Would the child who is the hero child, the desired child, would that child be more likely to develop narcissism in adulthood or no? Um, yeah, that's interesting. I, I, I think it varies. Um, it, it depends on how the needs of the celebrated child are handled, right? If you're, if you're actually taking the time to really manage your child's emotional life well, then that celebrated child um, can be fine and, you know, may not have, not may not be grappling with, with narcissism uh, later on. But if the parent is kind of one dimensional in dealing with the celebrated child, um, you know, it, it can promote narcissism. The, the child who is who is seen as the the problem child or the unworthy child that can go either way because in some situations um, that child is taught that their job is to serve the needs of other people yeah you know there there's kind of a lack of empathy toward that child and they they either learn how to elicit that from other people mm-hmm. or they can potentially become someone who is 
you know, eternally cut off from, from other people's perspectives and, and then spends their life trying to be validated. So you can sort of become the empath in that situation or potentially, you know, the narcissist if in making it binary. So when, when would a child start to show traits that they have narcissism and what would those look like? I I would say just uh, more of some of the the oppositional behavior, the the conduct issues, like a lack of empathy uh, in, in their early friendships in, in, in elementary school, um, acting out toward others without any regard for their well-being, um, uh, potentially, I mean, I'm thinking of some of the, you know, the, the symptoms of, of like conduct disorder, where we're talking about like cruelty to animals. Uh, that's what comes to mind. I'm, I'm not a child therapist, but I, uh, it's, it has to, I'm sure it has something to do with, um, you know, children who are also kind of one dimensional and celebrating only a part of themselves, like their outward appearance and really have no understanding or no even rudimentary, rudimentary, uh, emotional intelligence. Mm-hmm. Um, and just, I, but I would say probably the telltale sign is, is a lack of empathy for other people and their suffering and their needs. Yeah. Cause I'm curious, like, is there a way to like, is there like such a thing as early intervention, you know, for that? Like a, yeah. If a child is starting to show that, yeah. <laughs> Maybe in, you know, 15, 20 years, we'll arrive at that point where we're doing that. You know, first we have to handle the, <laughs> the well, adult, I guess, yeah, yeah, I guess adult that's the problem. narcissistic abuse survivors. And then we'll probably move into that. Yeah. Well, yeah. It's like, how do you do that? It's like, how, do, how do you do that where it's not, um, you know, making the child the identified patient, right? It's like, that's like such a tricky place. Oh, yeah. No, it's very difficult because if you think about it, in order to get to the child, you have to have a parent who's on board with the process and any skilled therapist will want to get the parent in to do some therapy or parent training. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's not about the child. It's, It's about getting to the parent. And if you have a narcissistic child, chances are, you know, that was passed down from the parent, not in every case, but in probably in most cases, there's narcissism that was passed down. So some parents, especially the narcissistic ones are like, fix my child. I don't know what's wrong with, you know, I don't know why he knocked that kid's tooth out like that. We don't do that. Uh, you know, and so uh, the parent will not take any responsibility. And then either the therapy ends or, you know, the that is so frustrating. It's actually part of the reason why I left the field of child psychology. Mm-hmm. I mean, other people can deal with it. God bless their souls. I, I can't, you know, when you get these parents who are saying, fix my kid, I, I just can't, That's, I don't have that, the wherewithal to do that. So that was my experience. So like at seven, at nine, I got sent to a therapist for the first time for separation mm-hmm. anxiety. And I remember as a teenager asking my mom, did you ever tell that therapist that you were an alcoholic and that you and dad fought all the time? And her response was, no, it didn't seem relevant. So, (laughs) (laughs) yeah. Yeah. Um, So let's talk about how would you differentiate someone with who's actually a narcissist versus someone with narcissistic tendencies? Well, you mean like narcissistic personality disorder? Yeah. So the narcissistic personality disorder is is more of a recurring pattern of grandiosity and um, kind of a sense of entitlement and and um, it involves uh, you know people who I, I guess it's about the recurring nature of it and and the impact that it has on their life. So they they end up um, pushing people away and. Um, it impacts them on some social, occupational, marital um, scale in some way. So it's it's the recurring pattern, and and really, um, because of the chronic nature, they they suffer. Uh, you know, they end up isolated and and um, uh, yeah, alone. But but I think it's more about the recurring nature of it where narcissism is just a term kind of misunderstood term that's thrown around Yeah, because there's also normal, healthy narcissism. Mm -hmm. We all have Uh, it to an extent. I would imagine. We all have it to an extent. Um, But 
yeah, I think regular kind of standard narcissism, or as we tend to use it these days, is more. It, it's the traits of of a narcissistic personality. For um, but you have some capacity for empathy, and you are connected to um, what's going on in other people's minds, and you aren't always narcissistic. You may uh, oscillate between feeling connected to people and understanding people. And when you're triggered, you know, show these, these narcissistic traits. It's not as chronic and recurring as the person diagnosed with narcissistic personality disorder. Uh, so when so, you say that people can be like, you know, can, can recover, like I'm a recovering, I'm a former narcissist. I would assume that you don't mean somebody with narcissistic personality disorder, right? Because by definition, a personality disorder can't be healed, is my understanding at least. You no, know, I, I would say that I have worked with people who are diagnosed with NPD. It's very hard. It, I, it's not like I work with them and then they're just better. It's it's a grueling process. And, and occasionally, you know, over if someone is able to commit for, you know, a year, two years, three years, of weekly therapy, which, which doesn't really happen with, with, Mm -hmm. you know, people with that diagnosis, um, there can be this kind of transformation that occurs. Um, I guess I, I haven't thought so much about, uh, you know, the people who have really truly made the changes. I I think it is true that they're probably more just very narcissistic as opposed to someone deeply, deeply narcissistic yeah i mean it also depends on there's different kinds of narcissism if someone's like a malignant narcissist which kind of you know mimics psychopath um, like sociopathy there's not that much you can do that can be done in terms of yeah. bringing them to some i mean there's they can improve but in terms of like this healing that i'm proposing or you know talking about it it's um it's it's with other forms of of, of narcissism um so what would you say the difference between um like borderline and mpd is um a borderline personality is more of of um just an unstable sense of self where maybe you know who you are and then you don't unstable relationships um an unstable mood mm-hmm. um and narcissism is is more about um, you know a failure of empathy and a, a preoccupation with or an entitlement and and a sense of self importance. Uh, but you know, borderline I see as more of a like a fluid fluctuating process where people just lose themselves. And there is some overlap, right? There is in the cluster B mm-hmm. personality uh, disorder. There is some overlap there, but um, in general. Um, you know, the borderline personality. Uh, it like literally gets like the, the leaf blower, like right next to the window. <laughs> um, sorry, what were you saying? Oh, I, oh, I know what I want to ask. So what I don't understand is what is with, um, people will say that the difference with, um, between complex PTSD and borderline is that borderline has the like the stronger element of the fear of abandonment the complex PTSD doesn't and I don't I don't see how that's the case because no there's probably I, more overlap I mean yeah. we're trying to fit these into categories I know, I know, I know. this is like the western way that I know. can get really tricky where people get get very comfortable with fitting themselves into you know a box into a into a, a file or a category and these are all very overlapping so yeah, yeah. Um, I think we've we've gone too far with trying to fit people into, into a labels into a group, yeah, you're, you're and it's right. you know it's kind of where science and research has maybe led us in the wrong direction, and we should be just treating people as individuals, not you know as as uh, labels as labels, and and so these are all overlapping, and some of these distinctions, even you know that I've discussed. You know, it, it's probably more overlapping than I've uh, made it seem. Mm-hmm. But you know, that it's a big issue that we're we're trying to compare people against some norm, 
and it just doesn't do people justice. Justice, yeah, you're right. I mean, if and but the insurance companies demand it, and people sometimes yeah. feel comfortable knowing that this is what they have. Um, but I don't think it's so helpful otherwise. But I understand you have questions. I don't mean to stop you in, in your oh, questioning. I'm, no, I'm totally good. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay, I'm just looking at what other people wanted to know. Mm-hmm. Um, let's see here. What causes vulnerable or covert narcissism? So what what's you you mentioned malignant mm-hmm. narcissism. So is covert different, I'm assuming? Is that the other type? Yeah, covert is is someone who uh, is more kind of suffers more, is more in touch with their negative uh, emotions. Uh-huh. They they score high on the kind of neuroticism scale, which is like a just they feel negative emotions more often, and they're uh-huh. a little bit more withdrawn, and they suffer privately. Uh, as opposed to being out there as an extrovert trying to gain uh, admiration or validation, the um, covert narcissism uh, narcissist is more private, suffers more in private, and they tend to be more depressed, more anxious, and more disengaged. It, they can shift, though. It can kind of oscillate. But it's it's very hard to identify them because we typically associate narcissism with this uh, you know, social openness and engagement. Um, so the covert narcissist does this more privately. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's still this preoccupation with, you know, getting validated and, and a preoccupation with the, with the hurt that they feel it's just done more in private and, and there's just more suffering there is a like a protective factor, a buffer for some of the narcissists who are out there, um, like in leadership positions. They're getting, they are getting a lot of admiration. They are getting fed. So there, there is, and they and they do have this ability to kind of do this. Like when most of us see things as a problem and we're affected, a lot of narcissists can just do it like Press it's dandruff, you know. Mm-hmm. And there is some protective factor. This is where narcissism can help. Like there's probably some middle ground where it's it's good to be really in touch with your your worth or even inflate your worth a bit mm-hmm. so that you know you don't get stuck on all all the problems of the day. But so the covert narcissists are are kind of suffer privately and they may then engage, but ultimately they retreat and kind of like lick their wounds in, in private. Um, they're very hard to identify. Hmm. What about, um, are you, so you're, you're, are you doing a lot of couples therapy? No, no. Um, I, I try to keep it at, I try to keep it at a, a low number in my practice. Um, because, uh, it, it takes a lot out of me. It's, it's very involved and I enjoy it, but at any given time, I try to have between, let's say one and three couples on my caseload and and um it's just where i'm comfortable i'm you know i'm i'm i i what do you think that is like why do you feel like it takes the the, more so the energy from you than working with somebody individually uh maybe it's also just about uh the training and um i feel like there are people who train all day long to be marriage and family therapists and they Mm -hmm maybe some of them are more skilled. I mean, I have my way that sometimes is very effective, but I feel like I want to leave that to the people who train all day long Mm -hmm. to do the couple's work. And there's something about it that takes up a lot of energy. Although I really do enjoy it with a lot of people. I I find that I'm much more effective one-on-one or I, I, I seem to enjoy that, that much more. And I find that it, just takes a lot more out of me to do the couple's work. I still do it and and it's fine and good. Um, and, and I just feel like it's, you know, I, I need to keep it at, at a certain amount just so, uh, as I feel like it's, once I go through a couple session, it feels like I just saw three patients in a row, yeah, yeah. you know? <laughs> well, what about this? So are you working with a lot of individuals who are 
not the narcissist themselves, but in relation with the narcissist. Oh, all the time. More, much more, much more common than, than the narcissist. How do you navigate the process as far as making the work less about the other person and shot and bringing it back on that individual and, and what they can realistically do in the situation? You know, how, how do you have that focus back on them? to do their own healing work, their own recovery work, instead of having it be a narcissist bashing session? Um, well, it kind of goes in different phases because, I mean, it depends where the person is at. If they are not yet aware of the kinds of punishment that they're under, if they're not mm. aware of the attacks of the narcissist and or how to identify them, um, there's certain work that has to be done to sort of protect them and put them in a place where they can then do the next phase in the work. So in that phase, what is most effective to get through to somebody? Because I'm sure it's, it's, it's like a, a massaging effort, right. Of like mm -hmm. leading them to, to, instead of flat out telling them, but like the art of directing them in mm -hmm. a certain direction so that it can be more of a realization that they're having as opposed to yeah. you flat out saying it. Right. Yeah. So I, that's a great question. I, I guess I'm thinking of it as, as we go, I, I think it's some combination of labeling the narcissist's actions as something so that it kind of gives the, the, um, my patient more perspective and that it's not their fault because when they come, they're fill, they're full of shame mm -hmm. and they think everything's their fault and they feel kind of guilty and beaten down. And, mm -hmm. and so the goal is to start to put a little bit of light, a little bit of space between, you know, them and, and, and the events that happen to make them feel like it's not their fault because mm -hmm. basically with all the different forms of punishment that they endure, they feel very confused and like well, it's trauma, right? Yeah, it's absolutely. So sometimes they're just sharing stories about what happened and, and how lost they feel and confused. The confusion is really misunderstood, I think, um, and how stuck they feel. And there's a lot of validating. And then there's labeling of these stories and what they are to try to give them some perspective so they don't just see it as their fault. Mm -hmm. And sometimes people come in and they have a good sense of, you know, what the gaslighting looks like with their partner and they can label some of these things so that they know that it's something that that person is doing and it's not necessarily, you know, all their fault mm -hmm. or their fault at all. Um, then um, the work is really about uh, figuring out uh, what their own values are, what their own boundaries are um, to make this distinction like what's important to them separate from their partner. Um, it's kind of like to get to know themselves as distinct from who they were trained to think they, they are. Um, Very similar to codependency, right? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And some of this is, yeah, very bi-directional triggering each other. But when someone re realizes that there's an issue and that they may be, um, you know, married to or in a relationship with a narcissist or their parent is a narcissist. Um, uh, it is a matter of, you know, being able to uh, give them a little bit of perspective to feel like it's not their fault. And then to see, to see how they may be triggering a reaction and what they can do to um, reduce that. And, and because uh, some people are just used to it and they don't necessarily want to I guess because they feel responsible, because they feel like they're a part of it, they they are almost accustomed to it. So it's like making them realize that it's a problem. Some people don't even know. They're just so used to a certain um, dynamic as a norm. Um, it is about kind of figuring out what is abusive, you know, versus uh, healthy behavior. People have a hard time distinguishing if it's all they know. And in that process, they're finding themselves, they're figuring out who they are and what they want for themselves and what they deserve. That's a hard one to do mm -hmm. because th there is a fog that goes with narcissistic abuse in the shame when, when, you know, when you're shamed constantly, 
it's very hard to really know what you think. And it's, it's almost like, uh, yeah, just like a confusion um, that, that comes um, from chronic narcissistic abuse. So it's very challenging to help someone to kind of clear that fog. People ask, you know, I, I realize that my partner is a narcissist or I think my partner is a narcissist. What should I do? And um, I, I think the first move would be to maybe do a little bit of research about narcissism. Um, and then it would be about um, sharing this as even if you feel uh, so embarrassed or you feel a lot of shame about it, or you feel like there's a threat involved and you, know, you have to stay silent, you have to be able to go to someone you trust, uh, a friend or a family member or a colleague and um, do some reality testing, like share mm. it with people and don't be afraid with someone who, you know, who's, who, who you can trust to, to talk about some of these things and get uh, perspective. Because mm -hmm. a lot of what maintains these abusive relationships is the isolation. Mm -hmm. And so getting someone else's perspective is so necessary. I mean, it sounds so obvious, but no, I hear you. It's so important to be able to do that. And then um, the other part of it is you have to be able to sub subject yourself to uh, um, an exploration on what really matters to you. It's kind of like know thyself is very, very important to understand what you're about and what your limits are. Um, because it's likely if you've been exposed to a narcissistic partner for a long period of time, um, you're not feeling that great about yourself and you've been belittled, uh, chronically. So you have to kind of get back in touch with celebrating, um, your strengths and, and what you're about, you know, learning about yourself, either through therapy or spiritual work, reading and, and social connection is, is absolutely crucial. And then obviously therapy to be able to go and speak to someone about this can, can really make a difference. Even if you want to stay in the relationship, at least learning your boundaries um, is necessary. So that, and do you that, have that any would... suggestions as far as how one should navigate finding, like, are there any good questions or things to look for when looking for a therapist to deal with this specific issue? Oh, absolutely. I, I, that's a good question. Uh, you could ask if a therapist has uh, an expertise in, in narcissism or dealing with narcissistic abuse. Mm -hmm. uh, some people are skittish around using the word abuse if they're just kind of realizing that this is going on. And there are therapists who stay away from narcissism. Some people, you know, with the personality disorders, there mm -hmm. are therapists who will try their hardest not to get involved with that. So you can just come out and ask that, you know, in your initial contact, mm -hmm. you know, that I'm dealing with uh, narcissism, a narcissistic partner. Do you have lots of experience in dealing with that? That, that would be the, I think the, the best. best way. What about like resources and tools? Like, do you think that like for somebody who might be in a relationship with a narcissist, mm -hmm. what are some of the, like, what are some really good books out there that you think people should check out? You know what? I don't even think it's, it's about a book. Honestly, that the first move is to go on YouTube and watch Dr. Romani's videos of Romani Dervasula. She is, she has the clearest, most lovely, wonderful, informative videos on narcissism. It's such a, a good starting point, better than any book you can find by far. She has, I don't even know how many videos, but she is just unbelievable. Um, I, I, I saw her at a conference, uh, five months ago, and I was just blown away by her. And you just go and watch five or 10 of her videos. And even one video will do the work to just make you uh, see things more clearly. Because um, she's just so wonderful with the way she delivers the information and the empathy that's coming from her. Um, so Dr. Romani, RA, or we just do R-A-M-A-N-I-E. Yeah. What about, so I always like to ask this question. So like, are there ever situations where you have to let a, a client go? Where I, where I have to let a client go? Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, first of all, when, when someone has truly reached all that they can get from me. Uh, yeah, I, I, well, I, like, I know that, but I mean, like yeah. ones like where more so where like it's, 
it's 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 unproductive. Um, yeah, I think so. I I, I think uh, if I feel like I mean, I have my limits in terms of some people come in and they are somewhat abusive and and even with some of the narcissists that that come in um there there are some who are just you know i i see like i probably won't be effective either they're triggering me mm-hmm. or it's just too hostile have you noticed um, any patterns as far as what triggers you in a client <laughs> what triggers me mm-hmm. because there's probably some themes yeah there are some themes I just think it's, you know, I don't, I don't want to be belittled. I don't want uh, them to focus on, uh, let's say, personal traits of mine or like personal mm-hmm. attacks, um, mm-hmm. things that are not relevant to the therapy. And, and there are a lot of therapists who are listening to this who may be saying like, well, that's where the work is done. But, you know, it's, there are times when I feel so abused Mm-hmm. that I um, I have to throw in the towel. Or if somebody's aggressive, if their anger is just out of control um, and I've tried, um, you know, I, I just won't do that work. That, that, that work is too, uh, I don't, I'm not there to be terribly abused. Oh, I can know. handle a little That's bit. Not because, <laughs> no, it's not my, well, well, I mean, you know, the, again, some of the like psychoanalysts would, would want, me to keep going with that and, and, and say that that transference is where the work is done. But yeah, frankly, I don't really want to be abused in my work and, and, you know, I work too hard. I dedicate too much of myself <laughs> to, um, but it, but it is when people are sort of, when there's too many personal attacks that are um, just feel like they're trying to uh, make me squirm or make me feel less than, you know, that would be, that would be one. Another one would be, you know, I have trouble when, when people come in, they're just so fucked up. They're so, you know, it's not even being stoned. It's some, you know, other, Pills, and that, yeah. that, that's the waste of time uh, for me. How Maybe do you other approach people, that? Well, I mean, thankfully it hasn't happened that much, uh-huh. but I'll go through the session and try to do my best and, and tell them that, you know, I, I just don't think that they have enough of their brain power available to be able to make an appreciable change. Um, but I mean, with marijuana, you know, two thirds of New York city, it feels like a stone now. seven, Yeah. Yeah. So some of that is, is almost part of the work, you know, that's just understood. Um, but sometimes it's, it's beyond that. Um, yeah, when you get people nodding that, out, <laughs> that they're just not ready for therapy. It's a waste of time. There are other places they can go, day treatment centers and places that are yeah, would, would serve their needs. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, I could talk to you all day long. This has been amazing. I'll have to have you back on. But yeah, there's have me so many. Yeah, this was great. I really enjoyed um, our conversation. And so where can people find you? Um, I would say the easiest place to find me is my website, manhattanpsychologist.com. Um, I have some, uh, articles there that I've written. Um, you know, I, I like to do a lot of writing so people can kind of get a sense of my style and my philosophy, um, by reading some of my stuff and, and, um, can reach out with questions or to schedule on that website. Um, I think that would be, uh, the best place to start. Well, thank you. I really appreciate your time. Yeah, my pleasure being here. Thank you for having me. Well, that wraps up today's episode. As always, I hope you heard something that can help you on your own journey. And as always, I'm pretty sure you did. Uh, or, or you got some some issues. <laughs> we all know that I have plenty of issues. So uh, thanks again to Dr. Kushnick. Super fascinating conversation. Uh, see show notes for links to his stuff, his shit as well as additional narcissism resources. And I, I think that's that's all for me, guys. I'm trying to think if, if I have anything else. I don't think so. I just ordered takeout um, that I want to eat. Oh, so I just tried. Do you guys, have you ever had the Noosa yogurt? I'm about to post this on my Instagram stories. 
But Nusa yogurt is like the best fucking yogurt ever. Um, if you have it, you will not, well, you won't want to eat any other kind of yogurt. Unfortunately, it's extremely fattening, but it's so good. But I was just at the grocery store getting some ice cream and they got Nusa ice cream. Okay. Nusa ice cream. I got honey vanilla bean and strawberries and cream, right? Because I don't know how to shop for ice cream or food in general just for one person. I'm always feeding a family of four. Like when I order takeout, guys, it is for a family of four because I'm an alcoholic, right? Or I don't know. Like I, I got to have options. I got to have options. I got to try multiple things. But so I just tried this ice cream. And holy shit, is it good? So... If you have an ice cream problem, I'm talking to you, Tiffany. She probably doesn't listen this far into the episode. Don't get this ice cream because it's like crack, okay? It is It is so freaking good. Um, but I will see all y'all shit shows next week for another amazing episode of Adult Child. It's going to be super raw, super vulnerable, and I'm super excited for y'all to hear it. It's going to be a goodie, I promise.